Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 101. It's titled, Why Markets and Economies Are Radically Unpredictable and Ceaselessly Creative. Last week in episode 100, Navigating a Negative Carry World, I talked about as we navigate our financial lives, we face unpredictable and at times a perilous future, that the investments and economic landscapes are as unpredictable today as any time in history. And I asked, well, why is that? And I said, because the level of complexity and interconnectedness among markets, economies, investment instruments, and participants has never been higher. In other words, there's more inventory, more people, systems, goods, services, ideas, and stories, all intermixing and connecting together. Back in the fall of 2013, I, I wasn't doing anything with investing other than investing my own money. I wasn't writing about investing. I, I was kind of in a little bit of a funk. And so I, I kind of spent those months just doing a lot of walking around and and listening to, I was reading Aristotle, I was listening to university courses online, Yale Open courses, and, and I eventually found that I missed writing, and I realized that I need to write and communicate in order to process my thinking. So I launched a website that November called Silence Like Thunder, and one of the essays on there is called, it's about the adjacent possible. And here's the quote. It says, one of the miracles of life is when something surprising and new emerges from the inventory of parts that already exist. Perhaps the inventory was combined in a novel way to create something new, or perhaps the inventory was adapted and applied to a new use. Sometimes the inventory, when combined, is transformed into a completely new substance, like in a chemical reaction. The point is, new creations and insights usually arise from the existing inventory of parts. They're not created out of nothing. Both our minds and nature need inventory to work with in order to create. The sum total of all new creations, ideas, and insights that could potentially emerge from the inventory is called the adjacent possible. That phrase, adjacent possible, was first used by Stuart Kaufman in describing the biosphere. And we'll talk in a little bit, a little bit more about Stuart Kaufman. And it was later adopted by Stephen Johnson in the idea space. So we have this inventory that's combining, and the new thing that arises out of the inventory is, is really the adjacent possible, what potentially could emerge. Kevin Kelly in his book, What Technology Wants, used the word technium to describe what I'm calling inventory. His definition of technium, he says, extends beyond shiny hardware to include culture, art, social institutions, and intellectual creations of all types. It includes intangibles like software law, 
in philosophical concepts. And most important, it includes the generative impulses of our inventions to encourage more toolmaking, more technology, more self-enhancing connections. We are a people that like to create, and we create and form new connections out of the inventory. In today's episode, I want to talk about two type, four types of inventory that lead to ceaselessly creative, radically unpredictable world. And those are memes, stories, goods and services, people, and systems. Those are the four broad categories. First, memes. Last weekend at a wedding reception, I visited with my wife, LaPrille's uncle. In the course of our conversation, I mentioned his last name, which is also LaPrille's maiden name. I pronounced the name Christiansen with the accent on the letters A-N, Christiansen. I've been saying it that way for over 25 years since that's how LaPrille's father said it before he passed away. His mother and the siblings, that's how they all pronounced it. That was her name, Christiansen. Her uncle said, it's Christensen, obviously accenting the first symbol, syllable. He said, I pronounced my name Christensen my entire life. That's how my father pronounced it. I was dumbfounded. Christensen? I've been saying Christiansen. All those years, I've been mispronouncing the family name. And I asked him, well, who started it? Because everybody I know says Christian, Christiansen, you're saying it's Christensen. And he didn't really know. He said, well, maybe perhaps my father-in-law, Howard, started it because he wanted to help others spell it, correct, spell it correctly as he was in business. But what I find amazing about this is most or many of LaPrell's nieces and nephews have adopted this revised pronunciation. They say Christiansen. And with a generation, no one will know it was ever spoken differently. In 1976, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins published a book titled The Selfish Gene, in which he introduced the term meme, M-E-M-E. A meme, according to his definition, is a noun that describes a unit of cultural transmission or a unit of imitation. Essentially, a meme is an idea or behavior that passes from one person or from person to person and from generation to generation by non-genetic means. So these, these are ideas behaviors, units of cultural transmission or imitation. Memes, like genes, can ex- experience mutations or permanent changes. This, the pronunciation of Christiansen is a mutation of a meme. It was said one way for, for many generations, and now a new generation is, is mispronounced. Well, mispronou- well, they are mispronouncing it, or they're saying it differently. Our culture gets passed to the next generation via memes. Much of it is non-verbally through example, and this is called tacit knowledge. Seth Godin would describe memes. He didn't use the word, but here's his quote. People like us do stuff like this. People being culture like us do stuff like this. Some of this stuff's good, some of this stuff bad. The most critical memes are those that ensure our survival, Yet the other thing, as I was thinking about memes, much is lost from one generation to the next, particularly with family. So you can have things that go from family to family or or from one generation to the next, but much of what is occurring within a family gets lost. It doesn't end up being a meme because so much of memes are behaviors. An example, it's not verbal. 
Let's talk about stories as other. So memes is one inventory, stories is another. My great-grandfather Peter emigrated to the United States and settled in Cincinnati in 1883. He arrived with his father and mother from the Netherlands. I remember when I was a teen sitting on my grandfather's porch in, in the little enclave we live in North College Hill, and I asked him why his father and grandparents had left the Netherlands, when I called it at the time, I called it Holland, why they left. Why did they pick up and leave and come to the United States? He said he didn't know, that his parents, his dad, never said. My grandfather has no stories or memories to share from his father about why they might have left, other than he had heard that they had brought a pair of wooden shoes with them, but he didn't know where the shoes were. So so apparently knowing why someone would pick up and leave their home and undertake a dangerous ocean voyage to a new land was not necessary information to pass along to ensure survival. It was not a meme that needed to, to be carried along. So now the story is lost. Annie Dillard, in her new book, Abundance, writes in one of the essays, it's called Total Eclipse, And here's a quote. We teach our children one thing only, as we were taught, to wake up. We teach our children to look alive there, to join by words and activities the life of human culture on the planet's earth. We teach them to wake up, to just to be a part. And and much of this, what we're teaching them, is, is certainly by example. It's not even verbal. Dillard's essay is a remarkable account of the total solar eclipse she witnessed in 1979 on a hillside in central Washington. She describes when the moon began to cover the sun, quote, the sky to the west deepened to indigo, a color never seen. She described how the color of the grasses were wrong. They were now platinum. The hues were metallic. Her hands were silver. And then how the people screamed, When the second before the sun went out, we saw a wall of dark shadow come speeding at us. We no sooner saw that it was upon us like thunder. It roared up the valley. It slammed our hill and knocked us out. It was the monstrous, swift shadow cone of the moon. Language can give no sense to this sort of speed. It rolled at you across the land at 1,800 miles an hour, hauling darkness behind it like a plague. Seeing it and knowing it was coming straight for you was like feeling a slug of anesthetic shoot up your arm. If you think very fast, you may have time to think, soon it will hit my brain. You can feel the appalling inhuman speed of your own blood. We saw the wall of shadow coming and screamed as it hit. I sat in my classroom at a Catholic elementary school in Ohio when this total solar eclipse occurred in 1979. We watched it on the television. I remember seeing it getting dark there wherever they were, the, the TV camera was. And then we would look out the window where there was only a partial solar eclipse. It was a non-event to me. I'm surprised I even remember watching it on TV. But it was only when I read Annie Dillard's words this past week did the magnitude and the profundity and, in fact, the terror of the total solar eclipse hit home. On August 21st, 2017, so a year from this August, if you're listening to this in 2016, the first total solar eclipse in North America since 1979 will cover the little piece of Idaho where I live. It's only 
couple hundred miles wide. I'm not even sure. It might even be narrower than that. The range where it, it grows to complete darkness. I can guarantee you I will be there awake and ready to scream. So Tillard's terrifying account of the eclipse will live on because she wrote it down. But my family's origin story of why they left their native land is dead and gone. It was lost in one generation. Through memes and writings, cultures can endure for millennia. But at times, they collapse and only remnants remain. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Back in that fall 2017, one of the courses I was listening to as I was walking around, walking our dog was Ancient Greek History. It's by Donald Kagan. This was part of the Yale Open Courses. And he was talking about the Mycenaeans, who were the first advanced civilization in Greece. Their culture flourished from 1600 to 1200 BC. They formed city-states, each ruled by a king with citadels and palaces located on the, the large hills near the coast surrounded by farmland. Kagan said the Mycenaeans had no soap. In order to clean themselves, they would rub perfumed olive oil on their bodies and scrape it off before taking a bath. These ancient Greeks grew olives, but they didn't have perfume. They got their perfume from North Africa because the Mycenaeans conducted trade throughout the Mediterranean and Mesopotamia regions, primarily by ship. The Mycenaean writing that survives is the earliest form of Greek. It was written on clay tablets. It contains no stories or myths. What does it contain? This shouldn't surprise you if you've listened to the last few episodes. It contained economic transactions. 
inventory list. It describes in minute detail things such as debt owed. Their money, as we talked about, what was the original origin of money? It was debts. They didn't have coins. They had records of debts owed. For unknown reasons, perhaps by invasions or some type of ecological event, the Mycenaean culture and economy collapsed around 1100 B.C., ushering in a dark age. We've talked a lot about collapse in on money for the rest of us and why we shouldn't overly worry about it and, and not listen to the fear mongers, but it does happen. It happened to the Mycenaean culture. Their cities were abandoned. The trade with far-off regions such as Egypt and Mesopotamia stopped. Their population fell as settlements were no longer powerful city-states, but small, poor, weak villages. There was no writing that originated in Greece for the next 350 years. Most of the Mycenaean memes died. They weren't able to transmit their culture, their writing, their, their form of the economy didn't transfer. The way that they built their cities did not transfer. It all died. But what remained were some of the memories. They survived in the form of folk wisdom and legends. Epic oral poems such as the Iliad and the Odyssey originated from the remnants of the Mycenaean world. It preserved some of their cultural traditions. Those poems were eventually written down in the forms we have today. So while memes with their tacit knowledge can show us what to do, much of it is nonverbal, it is the stories we preserve and share that explain why we do things. Memes show us how, stories tell us why. The origin story of why my family left the Netherlands is gone. We need both. We need the memes and we need the story. Kevin Kelly says, language is a trick that allows the mind to question itself, a magic mirror that reveals to the mind what the mind thinks, a handle that turns the mind into the tool. So what inventory leads to ceaseless uncreativity, not uncreativity, creativity, and unpredictability, radical unpredictability economy? It's memes, stories, and the third area is peoples and systems. Rules of thumb are a type of meme. Sometimes they are part of a story, sometimes not. Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote in his book, Anti-Fragile, that, quote, evolution is not a competition of between ideas, but between humans and systems based on such ideas. An idea does not survive because it is better than its competition, but rather because the people who hold it survived. Accordingly, wisdom you learn from your grandmother should be vastly superior both empirically and scientifically, to what you get from a class in business school, and of course, considerably cheaper. So what survives isn't necessarily the best idea, but if the people carrying the idea survive, then that survives. This idea then that inferior ideas can survive as long as there are carriers is reflected in economist Brian Arthur's theory of increasing returns. It describes the tendency for that which is ahead to get further ahead and for that which loses advantage to lose further advantage. We can see this in technology where the cost to produce the first version of Microsoft Office was huge. Hours and hours and and I'm sure millions and millions of dollars of research to produce that first copy. But the cost to, to copy, once you got the original, is nearly free. 
So consequently, the more frequently Microsoft Office is sold and copied, the greater the returns to Microsoft. The returns to Microsoft are increasing. This combined with a network effect could allow an inferior technology to win out over a superior one and for bigger and bigger companies to get bigger and bigger. I mentioned this in episode 98 on Lifestyle Businesses, in, in which Douglas Rushkoff writes at length in his new book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, how the, the bigger companies, the Amazons and Microsofts of the world, are getting bigger and bigger. And one reason is because of these increasing returns. Because once they have something, as it replicates throughout the network, the web effect, they could get a larger and larger portion of market share. This idea that the best technology doesn't always win, sometimes it's the inferior technology that survives because it was carried by a company or people that survived, is another reason the economy is radically unpredictable. The fourth area of inventory I want to talk about are goods and services. Earlier, I mentioned Stuart Kaufman. He's a theoretical biologist and a complex system researcher. One of my favorite books that he wrote, I guess it's the only book of his I've read, is called Reinventing the Sacred. And he talks about, there's a chapter in there about the unpredictability of the economy. And he talks about how goods and services, you have complementary and substitute goods. Hammers and nails are complements since they are both used to cre- together, used together to create value. You hit the hammer, you hit the nail with a hammer. Nails and screws are substitutes because they can be used interchangeably. And so Kaufman talks about imagine you're in a room with 10 billion goods and services that are part of the global economy. And you draw a green line between points that are complements. So between the hammer and the nail, between the screw and the screwdriver. And you use red lines to, to between points that are substitutes. He says 50,000 years ago, you'd only have 100 to 1,000 points. But now think of all the various goods and services that are there. He says most novel goods and services enter the economy as either complements or substitutes to existing goods and services. An example is the TV remote. It's a complement to the television. But there was no use for a TV remote unless television was widespread and there was multiple channels so that you could actually change the channel. So as the economic webs involves it is creating new economic niches for new goods and services that fit functionally into the existing web. And his quote is, the web begets its own future in ways that we cannot foretell because there's all these linkages as new complements and, and niches come about. And, and it's, expa- it's an expanding web. You start with the television and then you... You come up with a new niche, a remote, and then the, the remotes get more complicated. But the remote would never come about unless the, the television was already here, unless somebody had invented multiple television networks. And so you had an expansion effect. But not only that, the existing products, the television, for example, can be put to new uses. It can have things inherent in it that can be used in a different way. 
such as surfing the internet on the television. My son bought me a Roku a few years ago that I can attach to my television and then I can watch YouTube videos if I choose on my TV. So there was a new complement that was created based on what already existed. In an evolutionary theory, that is known as a pre-adaption, a quality of an existing product that hasn't been used, but, the, but or, or let me, let me, the quality of an existing product that could be used in a new way. Kaufman in his book gives another example of a pre-adaption. He discussed how the tractor was invented. And, and he says this is a true story that, that when they first started to create the tractor, they had an engine and they, st- and they would put the engine on a chassis with wheels, but it, would ke- it kept breaking the axles. It kept breaking the chass- chassis. And then they got the idea, well, why don't we use one of the inherent qualities of the engine bl- block that it is strong and stable. And so instead of putting the engine block on a chassis, they just attached everything to the engine block. And so it was the rigidity and the strength, the quality of the engine block that was then adapted for the new use. It was a pre-adaption, something that was already there that they could use in a novel way. And so it's these pre-adaptions. It's qualities of existing products that are used in a novel way. You have the same time you have new niches coming on in terms of complements, in terms of substitutes, and you have an expanding web. Same thing in terms of the job market. Think about what my job is. I'm a podcaster. Podcaster didn't exist 15 years ago. The, the ability to, when I was an investment advisor, we had to be there in person. Now I can give an investment help completely over the internet, globally delivering audio. The, this is an expanding web. So goods and services are more inventory. People and systems are inventory. Stories Memes and ideas are inventory, all mixing together new novel connections in an expanding web. What are the constraints? Well, one constraint is our resource constraints. All this, these new things that are coming about, many of them require energy and more and more energy and resources. Kelly talks about the dark side of technology that can't be avoided. He says, hiding behind these 10,000 shiny high-tech items in his house are remote, dangerous mines dug to obtain rare earth elements, emitting toxic traces of heavy metals. He talks about vast dams needed to power his computer, forests that potentially were cut down, or rainforest. And he's an optimist that eventually... Now, these aren't inherent qualities of technology. We do not have to destroy the world to create technology. It doesn't have to be that way. Hopefully, new technology will allow us to, to create new things, technological things, expand the web in a way that doesn't harm the environment as much as we're doing today. Another constraint is population growth. In order for the web to expand, you need demand for people to buy the stuff. And if the population is shrinking or not growing, will there be the inherent demand as new complements and new substitutes are added? Will companies be willing to make the investment to create new things? Those are unanswered questions. 
So what are the investing implications of an expanding web of goods and services, people, systems, ideas, memes, and stories? Expanding, unpredictable, ceaselessly creative. Well, investing assumes that the web is going to continue to expand, that the economy will continue to expand because we'll be producing more and more output, more complements, more substitutes, more goods and services. That's what investing assumes. That's the, that's the baseline assumption. Now, you can buy into the entire web through indexing or a segment of the web through indexing through a passive vehicle. So you're not trying to predict which technology will be superior. Or you can make individual bets by buying individual stocks. The analogy I use, if you're thirsty, you can go out, open your mouth, and try to catch individual raindrops, individual stocks. Or you can get a pitcher and get all of them and, and do it that way. That's what indexing is. It's, a, it's, it's, it's a throwing out a wide net to capture it all, to assume that the web will continue to expand. Now, the thing is, buying individual stocks is way more fun. Indexing just is not as fun. And buying individual stocks is just part of the learning curve. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I have a course there that, that's part of the hub called Seven, Learn to Invest in Seven Steps. And in there, I talk about going out and opening a brokerage account, buying an individual stock, and experiencing what that is like. Some people like to do that a lot, but I have found that I would much rather just invest in the entire web of opportunity, the ceaselessly creative, radically unpredictable world by indexing, by passive investing. Now, just because I have passive exchange-traded funds in my portfolio does not mean I'm not an active investor. All investing is active. Even if your entire portfolio is index fund, you have made an active decision in terms of which ETFs you're going to own. What is your asset allocation? Are you underweight or overweight U.S. stocks relative to the global market portfolio, how the entire world collectively is invested? The most efficient portfolio is the global market portfolio. Most of us don't own that. We own subsets. We own different weights. We're making active decisions in terms of the allocation, and we're making active decisions in terms of rebalancing. On the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, based on member feedback, I recently reorganized the homepage to simplify things into three steps. The first is set your plan. Set your long-term asset allocation, making using reasonable return assumptions over the next 10 years. The tools on there to help individuals do that include assumptions for asset classes, includes model portfolios for different expected rates of return, but you have to set your plan. The second is to stay up to date. There's a great deal of fear among investors that they're going to make a mistake, that they're going to overreact as things happen. Knowing what is going on with markets in terms of valuations, in terms of economic trends, in terms of market internals, a level of fear, that helps us keep our emotions in check and, when appropriate, make adjustments to our allocation based on the risk and opportunities that exist. And the third area is get your questions answered. 
Most of us have investment questions, economic questions. The Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I'm a mentor there to help answer your questions. There's a weekly plus episode, a premium podcast to get your questions answered. There's a member forum. All those things are available on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub at moneyfortherestofushub.com if you want additional help. So that is episode 101, talking about ceaselessly creative, unpredictable world. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you weekly. I'll send you a summary article so you have a good synopsis of what the episode was about. You can get that at moneyfortherestofus.net, or you can text the word, if you're a U.S.-based listener, to the word insider to the number 44222, and you can get signed up with that on your mobile phone. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only have not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.